Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. It's Bede Haynes here with another edition of the Australian and New Zealand Studies on the New Books Network. To begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which I live, and I pay my respects to the elders past, present and future. Today we have Michael Muhammad Ahmed, who has edited a new book here in Australia called After Australia, published by a firm press and in association with a movement he's involved in called the Sweatshop Literacy Movement. Michael is the founding director of that movement, and he's the editor of the book. He has a debut novel, The Tribe, which won the 2015 Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist of the Year Award. His second novel, The Lebs, was published by Hachette and won the 2019 Premier's Multicultural Literary Award and was shortlisted for the 2019 Miles Franklin Literary Award, which is probably Australia's best literary award. And he has the sequel, or the the third installment in that trilogy coming out shortly, called The Other Half of You. And I'll ask him about that at the end of the podcast. Um, Good afternoon, Michael. Uh, Hi, and good afternoon. And also, salamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. Thank you. Now, I called you Michael then, but you're you actually are most commonly known as Muhammad, but you publish under the name Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Could you please let me know about that? Yeah, I always appreciate people asking me about my name because with a name like Michael Muhammad Ahmed, people assume that um, Muhammad is a middle name, uh, but it's not. It's actually uh, one of my two first names. Um, so I. Uh, I think a lot of people of color and a lot of people from migrant backgrounds will understand this. Uh, if you're growing up in countries like Australia, you know, settler colonial societies, you find that um, uh, if you're a minority, you tend to have to live strategically between two names. So when I was growing up in Sydney's inner west you know, as a child, I was a very white community. And so, you know, I used to just go by the name Michael. And when I was born, my mom and dad were just like, oh, yeah, Muhammad in, um, in English is Michael. Then we moved to a suburb um, uh, in Sydney's west called Lakemba. And there you get the kind of reverse effect where majority of the kids that I grew up around were Lebanese background, Lebanese, Arab, and Muslim background. And so um, I remember, uh, you know, because my name was Michael on the roll, I'd have a lot of people saying things to me like, uh, why is your name Michael? Are you ashamed of being Muslim? Are you ashamed of being Arab? And so then I had to switch back to Muhammad. And then by the time I was about 20 and I started to have to think professionally about who I wanted to be, I realized that I was kind of living strategically between both names my whole life, going back and forth. Um, and so I just kind of got stuck as Michael Muhammad Ahmed. But in casual conversation, when, I, when I'm talking to fine people like yourself, I like to just uh, be re- called Muhammad. I've got to also tell you a, a funny little anecdote about my name. Um, it does relate to writing, which is why I like to share this story on podca- podcasts like this. Um, I remember I was writing an essay about 10 years ago for an anthology called Growing Up Muslim in Australia, which was published by Alan and Unwin. And um, the first, the the essay I was writing was called um, On Being Michael and Muhammad. And it was about living strategically between two names. And the first line of the essay that I wrote was, my name is both Michael and Muhammad. And I remember my editor, the editor at Alan and Unwin, had underlined that first line in their first markup when they were providing notes for the, for the essay. And she said, this sentence doesn't make sense. Uh, would you consider rewriting it as my name is Michael or alternatively Muhammad? And I had to put in the track changes, the response, I know my own fucking name. <laughs> yes. Well, I can understand that. Um, probably braver than I would be, but good on you. Now this book, for those who haven't seen it, my summary of it is there are about twelve writers in in twelve writers who have written works, essays, short fiction, poetry, 
Five of those have an Indigenous heritage, three are Indian or Indian Fijian, two have a Middle Eastern heritage, a couple are from different parts of Africa. There are nine women and three men. So, Muhammad, could you let me know how you went about putting this work together? What was your aim and how did you select this team of writers? Uh, thanks for the question. So, you're the first person to try to actually break down the demographics that specifically. Um, for me, uh, you know, supporting culturally and linguistically diverse artists and supporting Indigenous artists is the primary goal um, through my role at Sweatshop, which is a literacy movement devoted to supporting minority communities. So um, we, we were specific in our call out that we wanted to uh, prioritize Indigenous writers and writers of color, but we didn't, we weren't breaking it down to the, to the, numbers that you gave us so it wasn't like oh we need two arabs and we need you know a couple of black folk and we need, you know so that that just kind of happens organically what we were interested in is working with some of the best writers in the country who come from the margins and because we partnered up with a firm press and diversity arts australia there was as part of a funding stream a goal for this anthology that we represented a voice from every state in the country now there's 12 writers we don't have that many states so so some states got more representation than others but the idea was that at least one writer from every single state in australia would be uh, invited to contribute and so what you get with a, an anthology like after australia is a, a very culturally diverse uh, portrait of the nation but also a geographically diverse portrait because you you literally get stories from one end of the country to the other um and you uh, in terms of the the gender uh gap in the, in the anthology again there wasn't a, a that wasn't an agenda it wasn't like we were like hey we've got to have this many girls and we have to have this many boys we just i when i was putting together my wish list for the writers i wanted to work with i just emailed my favorite writers and the writers that i love and respect the most in this country and um, took it from there. It just so happens that uh, a lot of the women uh, of color and indigenous women in Australia um, are really leading the way uh, in literature uh, among marginalized communities. So it's not hard to find uh, incredible uh, women of color and indigenous women to contribute to uh, a, a, an, an anthology of this nature. It's a little bit harder to find the men. Okay. One thing I've noticed as the when I went through this book, your name appears on the cover. I think it appears at the end, and then there's almost silence. But I imagine you were very involved in this book. A couple of people actually take the trouble to cite you at the end of their work for your help. And someone refers to something about you being involved for 18 months in preparing this. So what does an editor's role involve in something like this? What are you actually doing with these writers to have this book in one day come out yeah thank you for that question again you're uh, it's been it's interesting talking to you um because you're noticing things that a lot of other reviewers haven't asked me about and other uh, uh interviewers have not asked me about um which is my exact role um so what you're noticing is that even though i'm the editor of the anthology i don't have an editor's note in the book um that was a, a strategic decision on my part as an editor i uh, wanted the book to speak for itself, not just in terms of each individual piece, but the book as a whole. I think um, uh, you would know, having read it, and anybody that that does us the honor of reading it, who's listening to this podcast, will uh, really quickly understand that the, that in addition to each individual piece telling its own story, there is a kind of coherent arc that you can follow from start to finish, and it's really guided by an important Indigenous writer named Hannah Donnelly, who who has an uh, an a prologue, an interlude, and an epilogue throughout the book. Um, I feel like when I look at anthologies, um, even though there's a lot that are produced by my peers that, that I very much love and respect, that for me, uh, there's something about uh, the kind of uh, unnatural or uncomfortable foreshadowing that comes with editors writing introductions for their own anthologies. I feel like it almost kind of gives away the, the magic. Um, and I find that it kind of imposes itself a little bit on the anthology. And so this time in this particular anthology, I really didn't want to have an editor's note. I didn't want to spend too much time speaking on behalf of the book. I wanted to put together an anthology that really spoke for itself and that gave the authors uh, room to speak for themselves. I will say what I did choose, which would be the closest thing to an introduction on my part, is I chose an epigraph. 
that I wanted to include at the beginning of the book. And if you look at the very first pages of the book, you'll see the epigraph is from the Black civil rights leader, Malcolm X. The future belongs to the people who prepare for it today. And I really felt like if there was one thing that I had to say about the book as a whole, and that if there was one message or one theme that the book carries, it was this particular statement that was spoken by, um, by uh, Malcolm X. And so uh, I feel like other than that, other than that particular statement, there, any, if I said any more, it might have almost spoiled the journey that you get to have uh, with the book as a reader. Okay. Thank you, Muhammad. Before we move into some of the themes of the work, I want to ask you about the cover. The cover, for those, have a look at it on the internet or have a look at it on the New Books Network website. It's quite interesting. It has a sideways picture of what looks to be a nuclear white Australian family from the 1950s holding a life ring. There might be a little clue in why they're holding a life ring, but their faces are blacked out with crayon. And then there's also the white seagull on the rear of the book blacked out by crayon. Could you shed some light on that? Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Um, so the, I think to to complement and to aid in understanding uh, how this all comes together as a package, you should also we should also take note of some of the other things that are happening on the cover. So you have this image, this very striking image, which, uh, by the way, has been nominated for an award for best cover of the year uh, just recently. Um, but uh, you know, as part of that, there's a there's a statement on the on the cover which says, um, "After empire, after colony, after white supremacy, twelve diverse writers imagine an alternative Australia." And so, you know, what we're talking about with with this cover and what and that statement that I just read is an anthology which tries to imagine our past, present, and future from the lens of writers of color and indigenous writer writers separate from the white colonial and white settler gaze that has historically dominated Australian literature and storytelling. And so the idea of the image, uh, you know, this quintessential white Australian family having their faces scribbled out is about reimagining this country, what it means to be Australian in the year 2021, what it, what it means, what it will mean to be Australian by the year 2050, because the stories are, 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 are written towards the year 2050. And also what it always meant to be Australian. And I think we forget that uh, so much of our history has been whitened and whitewashed. And so the idea of After Australia is reimagining um, our reality. And I think that the cover in its very, is a very provocative cover, but it was about trying, trying to ask Australia to reimagine the story of who we are as a nation. I also feel very compelled to point out some things about the controversy, but when we first released this cover, we began our writers and uh, Sweatshop as an organization, a firm press and um, diversity arts began to receive all kinds of threats from, you know, white supremacists and um, white nationalists. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a phenomenon called white fragility, which talks about the, uh, the, kind of insecurities uh, that a lot of uh, people who would identify as white feel towards having conversations about race and um, and the defensive maneuvers that a lot of white people will project to try to derail any conversations about race and and to try to derail any conversations about the idea that whiteness has meaning, that it has some kind of uh, value. In fact, I'll push it one step further. I think in Australia, it's really hard even to have a conversation about racism. We spend so much time denying racism is even a phenomenon. I'm not sure if you heard, but recently in a school in Adelaide, Trinity uh, College, I'm pretty sure it is, um, but but double check that before you publish this um, podcast. But I'm pretty sure that there was an incident where two white girls were, um, were caught on film. I think they filmed themselves hanging a black doll from a tree. And the, 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 the big argument that, that broke out in relation to that incident is, yes, it was wrong. The girl shouldn't have done that. It, it evokes all kinds of racist uh, history that is painful, particularly for black people. But it's not about race. It's not a racist thing that these girls are not aware of the history of racism aff- affiliated with, with lynching black bodies. Um, and that's usually how white Australia deals with racism. We pretend it's not a, an issue or a factor. Um, and so... You know, I think books like After Australia try to have that conversation at the forefront without any, um, without pulling our punches in any way, and that can trigger defensive maneuvers from uh, from people who are not used to having conversations about race. So, in several cases, um, our writers received death threats. Uh, our one incident in particular was interesting because Omar Saker, who wrote the short story White Flu, 
um, which we might talk about in a minute. But Omar Seka is an Arab Australian um, uh, Muslim uh, and, and also identifies as a member of the LGBTQ community, um, wrote, a, wrote a short story called White Flu. And um, when he released a paragraph from his story and, and, and was sharing the cover, he, he was receiving death threats and the death threats were images from Christchurch. So, so trolls were sending him images of Christchurch and threatening to do this to him. And this is the most ironic thing. This is a because this book and this cover, it's fiction, you know, and these people who are attacking Omar were attacking him on the basis that that he was the real racist. And they were using an actual white supremacist incident and an actual massacre um, as an excuse to 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 uh, they were using the they were they were using. Uh, sorry, I'll take that back. They were using fictional stories of like white erasure or white genocide as a basis for their anger and then to and then threatening him with real life evidence of the kind of violence that people of color experience uh, on a day-to-day basis. Okay, Mohammed, I will go into a few of the work pieces now. One thing that your most recent comment then has just made me think about is it's racism is a, a, one of the themes in this book and so are other themes like the environment and things like that. But one thing I in, did like about this book is explaining racism, it's not, the, the way this book works, a lot of the pieces in this book work, it's not saying this is what white people do to me and this is why I don't like it. It's almost saying I am who I am and this is just how I live and the work is just presented that way and you can take what you like from it. So it's almost saying to the people who would pick on someone for their race, I'm just ignoring you. This is just my world and this is how it's happening. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, we're living in a very divisive time right now. You know, there's so much debate, particularly within the context of COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, coming out of 2020 and, and of course, the Trump era. Um, the, the thing is that I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a common um, saying that's, that's emerged um, as part of this very divisive time. Uh, trying, you know, for theorists, trying to understand um, what is behind this fragility, you know, these primarily white men sulking that they're losing power and they're losing their platform and they're they're constantly in trouble and you know people of color are the ones getting all the attention now even though overwhelmingly the statistics still you know significantly overrepresent uh, white men in almost every single um uh, aspect of our society including australian literature and so uh what's going on here what's what's the basis of this uh this sulking even even though the statistics are so overwhelmingly still in the favor of uh, members of the dominant white culture. Uh, so the saying that I was referring to is uh, when you're used to 100%, 98 feels oppressive. And so I think a book like uh, After Australia, yeah, it's not attacking whiteness. In fact, most of the writers of color that we work with have no concern or interest in whiteness. They're just interested in their own lives. What anthropologist uh, Professor Gassan Haj um, describes as a healthy level of narcissism. You know, it's, an, it's a form of narcissism where minorities just take a natural and healthy interest in themselves. Um, and they just want to tell their stories and share their experiences. But I think if you're used to 100%, if you're a member of a community where you are 100% represented, even the idea that a, that a handful of you know indigenous people and black people and people of color are just taking up a little bit of space, telling their own stories, can feel like you are under attack. Um, and so I think that you're right in your interpretation that most of this isn't a white, it's not a white bashing book, but it's been interpreted that way by uh, members of the dominant culture because they're so used to being overrepresented all the time that it's hard not to feel threatened when when you see that when there's even the slightest indication that 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 the that the shift uh, a shift in power might be taking place. Now the first piece is by Hannah Donnelly and she has four pieces in the book and it's hard to pick the best ones but the, those four pieces just work so well together they're so well placed and we're, I'm going to speak about all of them but not but internal most but the first thing i love is is a book um some books just have great first sentences it just sets up the book and i love the first sentence of the first piece it says i'm going to educate you gronks and it's ironic in a way because what on earth does a gronk mean and i looked it up and there was lots of definitions but basically it's a it's a a a, a goose a fool uh, just a person with no idea it has other meanings as well. So 
I got educated about what Gronk means. And then the book itself obviously works as a lesson in education to those who listen to what it's saying. So I think that was wonderful. The, then uh, the next thing I want to ask you about Hannah's work is she has this story in the book. It, it, it ends up about the Aboriginal flag. And she starts off calling it the Koori flag and why that might not be right. And then she has this great bit where she talked about it being at a, a person's at a school and they asked the teacher if they can raise the Aboriginal flag next to the Australian flag. And then she has this great little quip where she says, if I was able to do that, one of the point I would do is I would just get in there in the morning and raise my Aboriginal flag before the Australian flag, which you're not meant to do under flag laws. Because, and she says, I knew it was in proper protocols and it would annoy the teachers. Now, to me, that just sets, that just sets a cracking pace for this work. Could you comment on that? Thank you. So that's a lot to comment on. I'll do my best to comment on all of it, but, but I'll start with your first statement about the opening line. So look, that's not only the opening line of Hannah Donnelly's first story, and not only the only opening line of all of her stories, it's the opening line of the book. And so I, I, I love that opening line. I agree with you. And I think it's a, it's a way of kind of saying to the reader, like, this is, a, this is an education. And I, you know, if you look at the, uh, the contributors to this anthology, you have multi-award-winning authors uh, from, you know, you know, several different backgrounds. They, between them, there's about 20 languages that the contributors can speak. Um, and the amount of uh, degrees, you know, the, the, the education level of these uh, authors, and including myself as the editor, you have probably about 30 or 40 different degrees, uh, university degrees. I mean, you, you have an incredibly uh, educated, skilled collective and cohort of, of award-winning authors and essayists and poets coming together for this anthology. And um, in a way, it's kind of like a little, these, you know, it's like a little arts degree compressed into one anthology, um, you know? And so the idea of, uh, of Hannah saying, I'm going to educate you, it's that this is a, 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 an opportunity to, to obtain an education in understanding culturally and linguistically diverse uh, literature in a, in a very, in a, in a compact, you know, 50,000 word anthology. Um, so that's, that's the first point I'll make. The second point about the term Gronk. Uh, so, you know, I grew up in the Western suburbs of Sydney. Gronk is just the most casual term you use. You use it like the way white Australia uses, mate, you know, like everybody's a Gronk. This guy's a Gronk and that guy's a Gronk. And so, you know, that's a very, I, I, what I love about it, I, I think you're right that there are different, there are variations of what Gronk means. And we, I don't even think there is a real definition, but, but it's such a part of the vernacular, I think, of a particular generation and of a particular working class Indigenous and POC community that I think it taps into. I, I'm so excited to tell you this story because I've never shared it on, um, uh, in, a, in a conversation before, you know, in a public conversation before. But I remember being at Punchbowl Boys, there were two guys having an argument about the meaning of the word gronk, two, le two lebos. And one of them was saying, what is a gronk, bro? Nobody knows what a gronk is. And then the other guy saying, you are a gronk. And he's like, yeah, but you don't even know what a gronk is to call me a gronk. He's like, I'm telling you what a gronk is. It's you. And then the other guy's like, but what is a gronk? He's like, you, bro, you look at your eyebrows, look at your nose, look at your cheeks, look at your skin color, look at your lips, bro. You are literally a gronk. Right. I also look at your spiky hair. <laughs> now, I'll move on. We're gonna, I'll come back to Hannah later. Just quickly, the, the first essay I want to comment on a story is Michelle Law. And she has an essay. And the theme I took away from this one is is filled with ideas of not belonging anywhere. It begins with her mother having to flee from a country in Asia. I'm not sure where. I think it's China, but I'm not sure. It could be Vietnam in the 1960s. Then she has this theme of the climate affecting the planet itself. You don't even have a place to live on the planet. Then this great idea of the desire to speak Auslan in some of the people. So as though it's as though your very voice will, will disclose who you are. But if you could speak in Auslan or, or signed language, that would protect you against against that racist attack. Then, in the end of the toward the end, the the book has there's been some climate catastrophe, and there's a saying a spray paint on the wall that says "Whites go home," which is obviously throws it throws the, the the common understanding around. But one thing that's constant in this book, and this is what I'd love you to comment on, is the role of food. She keeps turning back to food that her grandmother cooked, that her mother cooked, and she describes them in. Rice, pork, brown onions, chilions, 
all this type of great food and it's as though that's this constant she could this it, it only exists in her memory but that's the constant the country she lives in doesn't want her but at least she has this idea of somehow rather this food this resource wants her um so you're speaking specifically about Michelle Law's story here um and so you've so, so because you were saying this book sometimes i was wondering like there's a theme of kind of that what 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 you could say about Michelle Law's story can actually apply to the rest of the book. Um, and, and it is interesting that we can talk about those themes broadly or specifically. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to focus specifically on Michelle Law's story. Um, it's so interesting because you're asking me to comment on these themes, but what I'm appreciating is the themes that you're drawing out from the book that I don't even notice. You know, like I, I, I recognize as the editor the element of food in Michelle's story. I mean, the, 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 the absence of food and that kind of longing for the good, healthy, natural food uh, that we, I think, I think her commentary is like, we take this for granted. Uh, and that's an incredibly important aspect of the story, but it wasn't the aspect that I noticed. And so what I enjoy is hearing your interpretation. And so I'll, I'll, I'll allow the audience rather than me commenting on it, appreciate your, what you took away from that story, which is the, the politics around food. Um, for me, Michelle's story is about actually, I think, it's the most hopeful story. I don't want to reveal that because everybody that's talked about the book has told me it's quite a depressing, you know, desolate world that you're portraying, you know, climate catastrophe, police, police brutality, racism, white supremacy. Like these are the things that are being managed. Um, in some cases, you know, people are dealing with things like genocides. So it's a very, it's a tough book to swallow. But I think, you know, the subtext to, um, Michelle Law's story for me has always been, and I don't want to spoil it because I think it's such a beautiful story and it's not worth spoiling it for anybody who takes the time to read this book. Um, it's not worth spoiling this. Um, but I think the subtext when, when you get to that last line is hope. And this is why it's so important to me is because I think we spend so much time in the last 12 months, especially in the context of COVID and Black Lives Matter and all these conversations about climate change and nuclear war, it really feels like we are almost convinced that the world's going to end and that we are, um, we're kind of doomed, you know, and especially if you're operating in the kind of, you know, nihilistic left-wing circles that I operate in, it really very much feels like we're in our last breaths as a, as a species. That might very well be true, by the way. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that that's not necessarily true, but what I think, happens when you read Michelle's story is you realize that the thing we tend to forget when we are having these nihilistic and existential conversations is the human human beings capacity for love that actually even though human beings commit very serious atrocities and we're seeing horrible things happening throughout the world we still as a species love each other and and majority of human beings love other human beings and care for other human beings and I'm maybe I'm being a little bit um uh, optimistic, but I still think we're going to survive. I personally think we're going to make it as a species because I think um, that love will triumph in the end. And and that's really where Michelle's story takes us. It's a, the idea that that love will 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 motivate us to make the right decisions and to fight and to fight for a, a better future. Thank you, Mohammed. Next, I'll comment on Omar Sakar. I hope I've said that right. Omar Sakar's story, White Flu which I imagine most of the commentary on this is there's a pandemic in this story and there's a pandemic now, which is, which is, I guess, a lucky guess by Omar, I'm not sure. But in any event, it's interesting because the white people get the illness, which is the reverse. But the, the, the main character is homosexual or bisexual. And it's funny because there's a pandemic happening and he also comments on things that they're still prejudice against AIDS and in this book there's a in this story sorry there's a cure for AIDS and it still has a stigma attached to it and it has great representations of reality because it has a, a dying person you know I don't want to give too much away one of the it's got a couple of lovely lines I just want to comment on these lines and then ask you for a quick comment on this first of all he's the author is Lebanese and he has this great line where he says if Lebanon can pretend a civil war didn't happen we can pretend anything and I'd like to ask you to understand what that's driving at. And the other thing he does is it, the book also mixes English with Arabic words together, and there's no translations given. It's a bit like almost like clockwork orange if you don't speak Arabic. Then 
the final final comment in the book, you don't have to comment on all these, I'm just raising some of the themes that I took away, or some of the bits I enjoyed was, he has this lovely line where he said, food was home in a way that cities or countries could never be. Where he's talking about the traditional Lebanese food that gets brought into the mother in hospital. And it's even questionable whether she could still even enjoy that in being ill. But in any case, he, he makes that, I think it's a great line. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that, you, there's so many amazing points. I could speak to all of them. I, I'm not sure if I'd be able to, but but let me start with conversation about language because we, you know, we spend so much time talking about the politics that as a creative writer I, and as an editor I, and as a literary editor, I don't get a chance to talk much about the development of literature. So let's start with this idea of combining Arabic and English in this kind of fluid way that Omar did it in his story. And he generally does it in a lot of his writing, including the novel that he's writing at the moment, which is an extension of this um, short story. Uh, also, that's going to be published by a firm press, uh, probably be out next year. So, um, you know, th- I think that that's just reality. You know, the, you know the way um, bilingual and multilingual uh, human beings communicate is they, especially when they're speaking with their own mob, is they kind of go in and out of their languages. You know, I'll speak a little bit of Arabic and a little bit of English back to back. In my mind, I will literally think in Arabic and English simultaneously, and I'm not translating. It's not. It's not like I'm going to translate to a person who understands both Arabic and English as fluently as me. I'm just going to go back and forth that way. So I think for Omar, it's an intentional uh, literary technique to capture the the literal reality of how certain communities speak, capturing that vernacular. Now, one might argue, but that excludes and prevents certain people from understanding everything that's going on. And I think not just for Omar, but for a lot of writers of color and indigenous writers, that's totally fine because that mirrors reality. In reality, you don't get to understand everything. In reality, not not everybody can access the same language. And so you get a real taste of what it's like to, to be a, in the presence of uh, an Arab Australian Muslim community uh, by being deprived of certain things that you can't understand if you are not speaking the same language. I don't think it's any more radical, that approach to just having, you know, using uh, African-American vernacular in your literature, you know, because you, people who speak English will tell you that they speak different forms. Like, you know, we speak, we, we all speak, we're speaking English, but, but my English as a Western Sydney Arab Australian Muslim working from a working class background is very different to the English that would be spoken um, to somebody living in the North Shore you know, you know, who grew up in a middle-class Anglo-Australian family or an upper-middle-class Anglo-Australian family. And so I think it's about capturing the reality of language as a literary technique. But I want to tell you the reason why this is important and why I wanted to discuss it is because I don't necessarily agree, you know, not only Omar Seka, but another close uh, colleague of mine who I collaborated with for, for about a decade, uh, Peter Polides, who's a well-known queer Greek-Australian writer, uh, in his book, Down the Hume, which was published by Hachette, um, he you, he writes in Greek and doesn't translate it. In you know, it's an it's an English Australian novel, but but there's a lot, plenty of scenes that are written in Greek, and you're just kind of like, yeah, if you're Greek, you'll know what this is. If you're not, that's tough luck. And I'm cool with that as as a person who's edited both Omar and Peter for many years. That's a totally uh, sensible argument. You know, it's a strong claim to make for literature, and 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 there's a case for that style of writing. But if you look in my own creative writing. And even if you look in my own day-to-day interactions, like when I came onto your program, I introduced myself. I said, hello. I said, salamu alaikum. And I said, that means peace be upon you in the language of my people. I, I as a creative writer, um, love kind of translating and explaining what things mean. I, don't, I try to do it organically. I don't, I don't say which means, which means, which means. And I don't put glossaries in my book, uh, or in my books. But, but I love the idea of like trying to communicate to the person uh, on the other side of the of the aisle you know that that i'm i'm really interested in the idea that that uh that literature can literally open up the uh the the pages to another person's experience and and one of the ways you do that for me is through translation i will point out in my new novel that you mentioned earlier uh the other half of you uh, my narrator Benny adam who's an autobiographical version of myself is literally speaking to his son throughout the book. And so a lot of my translations, when when Vanny is explaining what the Arabic means, he's explaining it to his Arab Anglo-Australian child. And so there's a lot of technical ways that you can um, you can use translation and language 
uh, and, and that can be justified, I think, in this way. Um, <clears throat> I want to go on to one of the other questions. Uh, so let's talk about the, the overarching themes of Omer's story. So uh, the first point I want to make is Omer wrote this just before COVID happened. So COVID became a kind of global, globally conscious incident um, around, I remember in Australia, like, you know, it was growing and the conversation around it was growing around March. Um, but I remember just when the, the early news reports were, were dropping about uh, COVID last year, uh, Omer sent me a text message saying, my short story is coming true, bro. You know, because it was starting to happen and it started to feel like so many other things that Omer had predicted um, were becoming a reality. Now, one of the most interesting things to have played out since the uh, since the story was published, White Flu, is again, I was already telling you about this, but the amount of attacks from from, you know, white racists and white supremacists who were who were incredibly insulted that Omer wrote a short story, a fictional short story about a flu that overrepresents um people who are white as opposed to people of color. And the reason why this is so ironic is because while this fictional story was making the rounds and all of these, uh, you know, these fragile snowflakes were, were complaining about, about how racist this was, there was a literal virus playing itself out in reality that had way overrepresented in terms of the people that had taken, the lives they had taken, people of color and, and black people and indigenous people. And so um, it's not, it's not um, surprising, and this is how we've been articulating it in so much of our debates and our arguments. It's not surprising that uh, for a lot of white supremacists who don't really care about black lives, the idea of a fictional story concerning a white flu that's wiping out white people, overrepresent, you know, uh, you know, disproportionately wiping out white people, would be more offensive to them than the reality, the literal story of people of color being wiped out. That's how his, that history has demonstrated um, that, uh, that uh, some lives don't matter as much as others in the, from a certain gaze. And this is literally the basis of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, like people are always saying all lives matter as a counter argument to Black Lives Matter. And this is the evidence for what we mean by Black Lives Matter. It's that um, we're, we're, you're raised from a very young age to, to, to be conditioned to not value some lives over others. Of course, technically all lives matter. But but all lives don't matter until black lives and brown lives and 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 Muslim lives and in, indigenous lives matter as much as white lives. Thank you for that, Hannah Donnelly's second piece. I find her pieces very enjoyable. I find her it's the way she writes. I find unsettling in a in a strange way. It's it it's it's not the way when you see words written on a page that you would think that they would read. They just she has just a, a cutting way of just I don't know I, I I have to read it like three or four times to actually give a proper explanation of what it is. She has this great part in this book, and this is the bit I like you to comment on. She's talking the the, the piece goes on. It eventually begins talking about watching a movie, The Fifth Element, and she makes this comment that the, she goes there was a um she goes I think the actor is Hugo Weaving, no Eric Banner, or maybe Sam Neill. Whatever, same thing, which is just great. They're, they're, the Parthenon of Australian actors are just whatever, the same thing, which I guess is fair enough. If it's if they're the representation of Australian actors, that's that's the beginning and end of it. They are. It almost is the same thing. Then she says, it, "It still pisses me off that they imagined our flag in their future." In other words, in the movie, when they talk about the Australian flag, and then she says, "Australia doesn't exist. It's science fiction already," which I thought was very enjoyable to read yeah so there's a few things i can say on that um firstly uh, the idea of the the interchangeability of the of these australian actors i think you know i mean people of color are always mixed up you know racially and i think that's firstly hannah's way of like making the point that it's like well you know white people look alike or look alike in the same way that you know people of color are often pigeonholed as all looking alike that's the first point but the other point i think is that it, it recognizes this problem with the way Australia has presented itself to the world, you know, as the you know quintessential white Australian male. Um, and there's a and 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 you know, so often when I work with uh, students in the from the United States, uh, we have a I don't know if you know this, but we have a campus in Sydney uh, for New York University. And uh, you know, every couple of months, I'll give a guest lecture for uh, New York University students who are visiting Australia for a few months and doing a course um, in in Australia and in Sydney. Um, as New York University students. 
And one of the main things that those students always tell me year in, year out, no matter how many of them I've met, I've met about a thousand students from New York University now. And what I consistently hear the students tell me at the end of my lectures is how shocked they were to arrive in Australia and discover that Australia is a multiracial society. And you can tell I'm not making this up because we don't even use the term multiracial in Australia. You know, that's a very American term. I mean, uh, we, we, call, we use the term multicultural. But they, they, they come and they say, you know, I, I, I discovered the term multiracial from these kids because they were coming in and saying, the first thing that I discovered when I came to Australia was that it was a very multiracial society. And I think that's because Australia presents itself in a very monocultural way. And I think that that interchangeability between these three white male Australian actors kind of um, shows you the kind of image that we've created for ourselves versus our reality as a very culturally and linguistically diverse country and nation. So that's the first point I'd like to make. The second point I'd like to make is this, this point. Sh look, I, I, I think it's really important um, that I don't speak on behalf of Hannah. I, I, as her editor, am very proud of what we published. And I gave her notes throughout the process of producing uh, what, I, what, what I believe would be the best version of the, of the story she wanted to tell possible. But, 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 you know, I, as an Arab Australian Muslim, have no business speaking on behalf of Indigenous writers. And so I think that uh, Hannah makes some incredibly strong statements uh, on behalf of her mob. Um, which if you really want to fully appreciate, you're just going to have to read her stories. Um, I don't think I can really speak to what she means and to the, to the heart of it, or, or more importantly, to the pain that she's trying to articulate as an Indigenous person watching a particular white behavior playing out on her land. What I will talk about, though, is the genre, because um, the, the, the form that we write in for this book is called speculative fiction. And it's really important not to mix that up with science fiction. Um, and so, you know, the, the, when I began to introduce the theme to the authors and say, work to this theme, the theme was, uh, uh, wh where will Australia be by the year 2050? And I think a lot of the critics who hated the book, not that there were many, it's, you, you would know because you've probably read a bit about it. It's a critically acclaimed book, one of the bestsellers of, um, of last year in Australia, you know, so we're very proud with its reception. But some of the, the adversaries towards the book complained that it wasn't um, futuristic enough, you know, that they were expecting all the stories to be set in 2050. And what they discovered was something that was actually set in the past, in the present, in, in an alternative reality, more so than just stories set in some futuristic, uh, 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 some, uh, some stories set in Australia just 30 years from now. And so what's going on there? I want to speak as a literary editor on this, on this matter. Um, I think uh, often people confuse speculative fiction and science fiction. I think uh, the difference is usually science fiction, especially in films and literature, is focused on technology, on, on differences in technology, and we're watching a future where the technology has fundamentally changed reality. I think of speculative fiction as more about society and environment. And what this book was about was the society we're currently in, where we're headed, where we were, and the environment around us. And if you read Hannah Donnelly's work, because I think she's one of the masters of speculative fiction in this book, I think a lot of the writers who came into it were dabbling in speculative fiction. You know, for Omar, Omar Seker, who's a well-known poet, um, you know, speculative fiction is not his main form. Uh, but, but for Hannah Donnelly and, and writers like Claire Coleman, who's another Indigenous writer in the book, and Amberlyn Quaymalano is another Indigenous writer, speculative fiction is a form that they have mastered and they've been working in for a, for a, uh, for a number of years. And so um, when, when I was working with Hannah, uh, I, I think what, what she was, the story she was telling was mainly focused on how we engage with our current reality and how, uh, and how we reimagine our current reality to see it through a black lens. And that's very different to just talking about it as, you know, the future. Thanks. That's very helpful. It actually reminded me when you were saying that of an American writer, Octavia Butler, who you may know. and she has that where she writes some books that are set in the past, but they have a, a they have a speculative or aspect or magical aspect to it, and other books that are written in the future. And I can imagine someone would just like one of those styles only. Um, now, the next we get time will eventually catch us, so I'm going to have to move on. Um, the next book I wanted to comment on, there were, I wanted to comment on piece. Sorry, the same book was Sarah Ross, who has a who's 
has an Indian background, as I understand it, from Western Australia living in the Northern Territory. So she covers off a couple of those states you were talking about earlier and territories. One comment on this story, it has a lot of, I think it has a lot about where you do and don't live in a country. And, and one point I loved was the opening of this book where she says she flies into and she uses the words Darwin City, which to me is not an Australian term. You would say Darwin, as I would normally say it. But I was thinking, well, why would she say city? And then she goes on to describe it. But she doesn't describe the people. She describes the metropolis of nature. She talks about rivers and rain and storms and heat and humidity, plants, vines, geckos, frogs, tropical scents and frangipanis. And then the sense of cooking from just spices in in the flat she lives in, and I want you to comment on what 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 you think that's driving at. Yeah, I mean, so again, I you know, and I say this as with with love and respect to you that uh, these are Im- impressive interpretations that you're drawing from the book. They're not mine, you know. So like, I would rather um, uh, hear what you have to say about those things and say, oh yeah, that's a that's a cool take on the work. Um, rather than me say, oh yeah, I I I um I'm a master in what you just observed, so I'm going to comment on that. Um, I would like to comment on Sarah Ross as a as an additional opinion in it uh, uh, to to complement what you what what you just drew from the work. So I agree with every with everything you took from it. Um, for me, I think the 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 main the 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 most compelling aspects of Sarah Ross for me uh, is. Uh, not so much the environment or, or, you know, being, being from Darwin and, and then later, you know, obviously she goes to India, but, um, and the story set, you know, a large portion of the story is set in um, the, her motherland, but, but is her identity as the daughter of um, two mothers. And, um, and I think that, you know, she's very interested as a, as one of, as one of Australia's first children of a you know, first children um, who were, who is the daughter of a same-sex couple, who's the biological daughter of a same-sex couple. And um, I think that she, what, what I love about Sarah's writing is the, is how, is its intersectional capacity because she's very interested in talking about, uh, cl- about sexuality, but not separate from race, uh, gender uh, and class and faith. And I think this is important because uh, when you look at the conversations that come out of intersectional uh, communities uh, and and you know intersectional scholars and uh, paralleling um, arguments that come out of uh, you know uh, scholars in intersectional feminism, is the way in which um, certain movements, you know, whether they're gay rights movements or whether they're women's movements, tend to leave members of their, their, those communities behind because they don't factor in the other intersections. And you know, okay, okay, like in in Australia. The 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 push for LGBTIQ rights has been tremendous and tremendously successful, and I'm very aware that tonight, you know, so we're going to have the the Mardi Gras, um, and and uh, so it's a timely conversation for us to be having. But I think that um, that what tends to happen is we don't realize how something like your religious faith, like Christianity. And your your cultural identity, like if you're South Asian, for example, comes into the direct conflict with your sexuality, and then how do you reconcile those things? How do you be everything you are at the same time, even though from the outside they seem to contradict each other? And I think Sarah's got a fantastic way of speaking to that experience and to that um, to that reality. Uh, and I think that's the that's that's what's at the foreground of her story. And then in the background is this uh, gorgeous portrait of of these environments that she's um that she's interacting with now unfortunately i have to skip past a couple of these essays the next one i want to comment on is hannah's next piece it's called horses and mules one i love how she she just disarms you in the way the story the the story begins it's just such, such a typical objective modern style prose for a start of a short story that's not about this story though about a bush ranger and and at one thing that I that I took away from this is that there's this idea that in Australia bush rangers are revered. They're sort of they're made into heroes. But the point she makes is they're made into heroes when they're dead. It's the gravesite that's a hero. When they're alive, they they're not necessarily heroes. So the the, the the bush ranger's dead, and then the story goes on. She gets a couple of parking fines. And the question is, does she do what her dad says and goes and fights? It's sort of ironic that a person with Indigenous heritage could be fined for parking a car on their own land, their own country. But anyhow, that's how it is. 
and she decides in the end, well, no, I don't really want to give away the end, but um, the, the, the general concept, I think one of the themes in this story that I took away from it is the notion that what the dead are romanticized for something, she's punished for doing something which is what an Indigenous person ought to be able to do. And in the end, the law wins. It's a bit like the Clash song. I fought the law and the law won. It's, it's sad and it's hopeful and it has a bit of pathos in it. But anyhow, I really enjoyed that piece. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what, what I'm taking away from the conversation we've had so far is how much uh, Hannah's pieces have resonated with you. That's no coincidence. I think that what's really special about this particular anthology um, is that w- with Hannah Donnelly as a kind of guide, you know, that she kind of guides us through the whole book because she has four pieces that are interspersed throughout the book and they make up um, the prologue, two interludes and an epilogue. And that's quite rare. I think usually anthologies, um, usually anthologies are kind of like story by story and, you know, each person speaks for themselves and they don't, you know, there might be a recurring theme, but generally each story is its own argument. Um, but what, what you get in an anthology like After Australia is a, a coherent, uh, collected effort from a, a, from a group of, um, from a group of uh, some of Australia's best writers speaking to each other and speaking together uh, for our past, present and future. And so, you know, when I, when I think about Hannah's work, I don't, I don't, I don't have that kind of, you know, it's been uh, 16 months since the book. I know it's been. Uh, 24 months since I started working on the book and it's been 12 months since the book was released. And so um, I, um, I don't have that kind of vivid memory of each individual line, but I have a very clear portrait of what Hannah's speaking about as a whole. And I think what, what, what audiences who read the book from, from start to finish will appreciate is the, the level of sophistication in the form that Hannah is working in, which is speculative fiction. Uh, we don't, I, I, what I would love to point out is when I've done interviews as the editor with the writers, and when I talk to the indigenous writers, it seems to me like there is something very specific about the indigenous experience and the form called speculative fiction that is very special. And I, when I ask people like Claire Coleman and uh, Hannah Donnelly uh, to comment, on what it is about that particular form that resonates so strongly with their people. I think they, 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 and you know, that you would have to check them out to find, to find the, the exact wording. But the impression I get is that there's something about speculative fiction that provides indigenous communities with an alternative to the white supremacist settler colonial reality that they have to deal with right now. And that is the, probably the first step towards reconciliation is if we can start to imagine transformation, then from there we can start to actually implement a, a better future. Okay. I'll ask you I'll wait one comment about Hannah, but I won't get you to comment on this yourself because it's time is against us. Her last piece is about Pemmelwoy, a famous Aboriginal warrior, and has wonderful notions about the role of law and whether law actually gives indigenous people anything when it gives it rights because it's law that comes from england originally in any case i think there needs to be an australian film made about pemoy he's a remarkable character and pieces like this will keep that will bring that name to people who might otherwise not come across it so that was in itself wonderful the last piece i would like you to comment on is carly wasain has this piece and the thing I I read this a couple of times, and then when I read it the second time, I sort of I, I'm not sure if I got it, but then I thought I got it. But maybe I mean, as you said, you're not the master of the, the knower of all these things. But the story has this this idea of once again a person who comes from overseas being in some ways excluded within Australia. They're not made to feel welcome, and there's border protection and things like that. And one of the things throughout this story, uh, there are just so many references to so many things that have come into Australia from overseas or overseas people. It refers to the Greek islands, the Clown Film Festival, German newspapers. Ramesh, the cook in this in this pub, the most Aussie of establishment, is kept behind the scenes in the kitchen, but makes lettuce, cheese, and tomato, such as a typical Australian sandwich for a friend. Um, there's pizza boxes. There's there's all sorts of things, but then beneath all this, there's this idea of a border force, and you think, well, what are you keeping out? Everything's already here. The only things you're keeping out are the actual people. 
um, that's anyhow, that was one of the things I took from that story. I'd like your comments on that story. Yeah, thank you. So I, I'm enjoying um, this part of the conversation where we're exchanging what we took away from the story. You know, that like I get to hear what, your, what you take away as much as you get to hear what I take, take away. Um, so uh, his name's Khaled Wasemi. Um, he's from a Somali background, uh, one of, um, you know, one of Australia's most exciting new writers um, and uh, is a Melbourne based author. And what I what I think is so interesting about Khaled's piece in contrast to the other stories we've talked about is everything else I think is really in your face. You know, the, the, the things about Hannah Donnelly's stories is they're really in your face. You know, everything is really explicitly stated, whether it's about the about, you know, white people wearing the indigenous flag or whether it's about certain films or whether it's about educating you Gronks, like it's really direct. Um, similarly, I think uh, Omar Saker's uh, story is incredibly um, uh, and intentionally uh, in your face. It's it's quite vulgar in certain areas. It's very clear what's going on. It's very, uh, you know, the, 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 that flu, the white flu, which is the backdrop, it's very present and it's looming monstrously in um, in the lives of all these people. And it's a kind of terrifying reality. What I find so incredible about Khaled's story and why it works so well in this anthology is because everything is very understated, you know, and I, I, you know, it's such a mundane experience. You know, these people, this, he's a kind of the, the character that Khaled creates, the narrator, the main character is kind of this pretty, you know, n- normal day to day, lame poet, you know, who's just kind of going by his life and having these casual interactions with people and, and, and engaging in his, in, in the, in the kind of life and the concerns of this little dog, you know? So it's a very, very mundane story. It it, it feels the most real life um, out of all the stories you'll read. But here's the most fascinating thing is that the, you know, there's this eerie tension that's driving throughout the story, you know, refugees just disappear in the middle of the night and life just goes on and nobody asks any questions. And it's just like, Hey, what happened to mom? And it's like, we don't know. And then things just continue. And I think that it's such an important story in an, in an anthology speculating about the, the darker side of Australia, because when we try to have these conversations, if things aren't just happening right in your face immediately, it's hard for us to believe they're happening. You know, I mean, I, when I talk to people who don't believe in climate change, um, it, the, I, the problem for them is that they just can't literally see the the, the the earth falling apart in front of them in the moment, you know, and um and uh, it, it's just you know the, the science just doesn't work that way. It's a kind of you know our apocalypse is this kind of slow drawn out process, um and and the, the thing is that I think Khaled's story explicitly captures that 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 tension and that that underlying uh uh, uh monstrosity that takes place while life goes on in a very ordinary, normal way for most Australians. And, 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 and I think Khaled is the master of that style of writing, you know, that very mundane reality. And then underneath the surface is where all the drama and all the conflict and all the fear and all the tension lies. And you have to read closely. Thank you. Well, we'll finish up now. I want to get you back for your, when your novel comes out, if you're willing to come back. The one thing you've raised then, which I'm not going to ask you about now because it will be a long answer because it must be a very deep area is the role of narrators in fiction and how many different styles there are in this book the narrator's always been a an interesting figure um but that's for another day so muhammad two final questions first of all your dr michael muhammad what is, i would like to ask you about your background as to what your what your academic background is in and then i would like to ask you about what you are doing now what work you're working on now Thank you. So, um, firstly, I, um, in terms of my academic qualifications, I have an arts degree. I majored in English text and writing and minored in history, philosophy, and politics. And then I completed an honors degree um, with uh, my focus being in literature and literary criticism and creative writing. And then I completed a doctorate. After that, I completed a doctorate of creative arts, um, which was a combination of creative writing, literary criticism, and cultural theory. Um, in terms of what I'm working on at the moment, I'm uh, the very proud founding director of Sweatshop Western Sydney Literacy Movement, which is a um, which is a uh, an, a, um, a program devoted to empowering people of color and Indigenous people through reading, writing, and critical thinking. 
I've got to I've got to put in a shameless plug, but it is for a good cause. Uh, you can jump on the Sweatshop website, which is sweatshop.ws, to find all of our incredible anthologies, including After Australia and all these other amazing anthologies which feature the work of writers of color. We have our new anthology coming out in three months, which is called Racism: Stories on Fear, Hate, and Bigotry, which um, uh, uh, which uh, is a collection of short stories and poems from people of color and indigenous people sharing their experiences of racism as Australians. Um, and also, we've just began producing a prequel, or maybe it's a sequel, or maybe it's a sequel prequel to After Australia called Before Australia. I don't think that'll be out for at least another two years, but it will be edited by my very dear and close colleague, Winnie Dunn, who is the general manager of Sweatshop. And lastly, I'm working on the final stages in my new novel, The Other Half of You, which will be out this June. Thank you very much. Thank you for your your generous time today, your pieces that you've said today have been very ins- insightful, very interesting, and really bringing, I think, modern Australia into focus. So, Michael, thank you very much. Sorry, Mohammed, thank you very much for your time. Um, I'm both Michael and Mohammed, so um, happy to be recognized with either and both names. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And once again, I'd like to say, Salamu Alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. Thank you. And thank you to everyone listening into this show. Feel free to leave a ratings, a rating for the New Books Network if you would like. Otherwise, we will see you next time on the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel. Bede Haynes signing off. Thank you.